glad to see you on this last day of the year. I took care of this morning. I began the year preaching. I get to end the year preaching. What's not to love having such an opportunity? And I'm, I'm thankful to be here uh, with our congregation that I love so dearly and look forward to opening the word uh, with you. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, I've been s- slowly meandering through 1 Peter uh, over the past eh, almost a year and a half uh, and have uh, preached a few times in 1 Peter uh, here at Midtown. And uh, there, there is a sustained argument that, that Peter is giving. Uh, we come to this particular passage, and I think if you want to see where this passage really latches hold and, the being, and then begins to work through is in chapter 2 in those opening verses. And I think we dealt with this text a few months ago, maybe a year ago. Memories fading on me, but it's somewhere back there. Uh, where uh, the uh, apostle is helping us understand what it is to be able to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And he exhorts us in that passage to rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then he moves on from that point, and he speaks of Christ being a living stone, and we're, we're a bunch of living stones. We are in union with him, and out of union with him, then we begin to live lives in Christ. And then in uh, verses 11 and 12, he gives this exhortation, because what he's doing, he's helping us to see how do we live as living stones, How do we live the Christ life? How do we truly live as Christians? He says, well, you're aliens and strangers. Uh, Yes, you're in this world, but you belong to another world now. Uh, Yes, you're going through all kinds of things. You've got all kinds of stuff going on around you, but you belong to Christ. And Christ is now working in you so As aliens and strangers abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, that is, among the world, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they may observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And then he gives several areas in which we just normally are to live out the Christ life. He says, submit yourself to governing authorities. So in in the, uh, the... um, the, the political sphere, the community sphere, were to be living as Christians. And then he talks about slaves who were undergoing all kinds of difficulties and trials. And he says, but you are to be suffering even in the name of Christ. You are to be experiencing Christ right in the middle of, of what you're going through. And, and then he uh, tells us why we can do this. Uh, in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. He died for sins that we might live for righteousness by his wounds you've been healed. And then he talks about the marriage relationship in the same way, and he talks about wives. And then in verse, uh, verse 7, 
he says to the husbands, in the same way. That is, the same way that slaves are learning to live in Christ, the same way that Christians in the public realm are learning to live in Christ, in the same way that Christ himself gave himself over to the Father and rested in the Father, in that very same way, husbands and wives are to be living like that. Now we come to verse 8. That's our text. If you will, stand with me and hear God's word. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. This is God's word. Be seated, please. Well, in my devotion time uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, was, I read the staggering command in Joel 2.13. Tear your hearts and not just your clothes. Now, we don't usually get into a real difficult time in our spiritual life and start shredding our shirts. And, you know, we, we don't think in those terms. But that was very much uh, a, a manner of expressing in that era a sense of deep repentance. And so I began to meditate that metaphorically, how often do I rend my shirt, tear my shirt, but I don't really tear my heart. I don't really get down deep. And so by that, I can, uh, I can rend my heart and say, oh, I'm, 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 I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying. I'm gathering for worship. I'm giving my tithes and offerings. I'm giving thanks to the Lord. I get together with Christians and sing, and I can talk about the sermon that's, that's been preached, and I can uh, talk about some book that I'm reading that has been helpful and useful and I can make all the right comments that are expected of me as a Christian and make everything sound like it's going well. I mean, I can get together with the saints and by every outward appearance be walking in faithfulness and living the Christian life. But inwardly, I can be cold and dried up and harsh and bitter. You see, the Christian life is meant to be lived from the outside to the inside and then to the outside. But let me explain what I mean by that. The Christian life does not originate with us and within us. And what we, we have to continually be reminded of that. It doesn't start because we're just really swell folks. Okay, it doesn't start like that. It doesn't start because we have more intelligence than other people. Uh, the Christian life begins uh, because the Lord, with a glorious, gracious invasion into our lives, comes from outside of us 
begins to work in us. That, that's what Peter says right at the beginning of this epistle in chapter 1. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the act of regeneration, the act of making us alive, which brings our dead minds and hearts to life so that we hear and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as he is proclaimed in the gospel. It's the implanting of a new nature in Christ within us. It's all outside of us, and then by that new birth, the Lord plants that inside us so that now what was outside us is now inside us. Jesus Christ lives in us by the Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory, uh, the Apostle Paul says. And so, as Peter says earlier, quoting from Psalm 34, we've tasted that the Lord is good. And we're, we're now living stones who are part of the living stone. We're a spiritual house in a holy priesthood as the body of Christ, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But Christ in us cannot be contained. Brothers and sisters, if he's in you, if he's in you, then he's going to start working out of you. And so his life in us living and reigning takes possession where Satan had once had dominion. And by grace, he unites us to himself. He works his life and his character in us so that the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, begin little by little in that work of sanctification to become the evidence that Jesus Christ lives in us. He was outside of us by the new birth. He is inside of us. And in sanctification, he's working his life in us so that he might work his life out to others. And the Christian life, what I like to just call the Christ life, the Christian life is lived from the outside to the inside and now to the outside. And that's what we see in this passage. So here's what I'm going to focus on. Very simple. Life in Christ affects the whole person. Life in Christ affects the whole person. We're not simply to claim Christ. We're to be living the Christ life. And that's to show up in every sphere of our existence. It's not something mechanical. It's not some list of rules and regulations that we follow. Instead, the Christ life cannot be lived without Christ radiantly living within us. And this living, mighty, powerful, gracious, energetic person lives in us by the Spirit. And he, if he lives within, he's not passive. Oh, Jesus isn't passive. He's, he's not sitting around waiting for us. He's working in us. And he's intentionally, by the, uh, by the power of his spirit, given us grace so that we might actively live the Christ life. But how does that work out in real time? I mean, that, that's the nuts and bolts for us, isn't it? How does it work out in real time? Well, Peter is earthy. 
I mean, it, this epistle is very, uh, I mean, there's nothing flashy about it. He's just earthy. He, he gets down to, to we'd say in southern vernacular, to the cornbread and peas. He just puts it out where it's very clear, very simple. I mean, here was a brother who thought he had it all together, and what does he do? He denies Jesus. And even after a number of years of faithfully walking with the Lord, Paul, his little brother in the faith, had to rebuke him publicly in front of the Galatian Christians because he was reverting back to legalism. I mean, he was a guy that struggled. He understood that if he would live the Christ life, he had to know how weak he was. Some of us haven't learned that. So what the Lord will do is bring us into circumstances where we experience our weakness at levels we never dreamed, and we wonder what's wrong. No, it's what's right. He's working in you to show you you can do nothing apart from him. And then he works to enable you. And so Peter had to learn that. And, and what he does, he gives us three foundational aspects of living the Christ life that I want us to see in this text. The first is the Christ life in disposition, cultivating the heart. The Christ life in disposition, cultivating the heart. The second is the Christ life in relationships, controlling the tongue. The Christ life in relationships, controlling the tongue. And third, the Christ life in consciousness, anticipating the future. The Christ life in consciousness, anticipating the future. By God's grace, let's work through this together. First, the Christ life in disposition, cultivating the heart. You'll notice in verse 8, he begins with finally, or to sum up, or in summary. So he's not beginning a new subject, but he's pulling together this extended exhortation I kind of ran through quickly earlier, and, and, and he's showing us what it means to be a people who have tasted that the Lord is good, what it means to live as strangers and exiles in the world. He's teaching us to abstain from those sinful desires that wage war against the soul and to conduct ourselves honorably as followers of Christ. But how do we do this? We do it on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that death and resurrection life that he is working in us. He works this out in the public sphere. He works it out even under extraordinary duress as these brothers and sisters were who were facing slavery. He works it out in teaching us to entrust ourselves to the Father as Jesus did. He works it out by bringing us to that place of learning to die to sin and live in righteousness. He works it out in the husband and wife relationship so that we learn to live the Christ life together. But did he cover everything? Nope, not yet. But that's what he says in verses 8 through 12. Okay, finally, I'm going to put everything else into this one big pot. You know, we, we've looked at a few things already, but, but now he says what I'm saying is that the life of Christ affects everything. In every sphere of life, there is nothing, nothing that we hold back and say, well, this is mine. No, not when he is Lord. It belongs to him. And he said, here's what it looks like. Finally, verse 8, all of you, 
every believer, all of you in every realm, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another and be compassionate and humble. Now, these are heart dispositions that look like Jesus. You remember Paul wrote to the Philippians, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, Jesus, the exalted son of God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You remember what Jesus said of himself, and he rarely spoke anything about himself, but he said, I am lowly and humble in heart. And then, as Peter wrote earlier in chapter 2, 22 and 23, he did not commit sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten in return. And his life is now in you. And so what Peter is saying, be like Jesus. What are you trying to do in the Christian life? By God's grace, through the provision of Christ, be like Jesus. And so what Peter's doing is helping us to see this begins in our disposition, then it overflows into our relationships, and it enables us to live with the future hope that we are in Christ and that Christ's life is being lived out of us. Now, the dispositions in verse 8 are not the kind of, of virtues that we can pretend. It's pretty hard I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to pretend uh, humility and compassion. These are dispositions that are forged by dying to sin and putting on Christ. So n- notice them briefly. One, be like-minded, or we could translate it, be harmonious, be of the same mind, be united in spirit, be of one mind. He, he's not talking here about simply having doctrinal agreement. There'll probably be a lot of folks we have doctrinal agreement with, and we just do not get along with them. He's talking about something much more intense here. Yes, we want that doctrinal agreement, but uh, it, it is as Peter Davids explains, this is not the unity that comes from a standard imposed from without, such as a doctrinal statement, but that which comes from loving dialogue and especially a common focus on the one Lord. I mean, think of the, the translation, be harmonious. So if we sing a hymn and we follow the soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, and each of us takes our part and we sing it together, you can take these notes that maybe sound kind of awkward if you separate them, but you bring them together and there's this magnificent harmony of voices that are blending together to make one great declaration. And so what Peter is saying, that in being same-minded, each one individually, with all the different personalities and backgrounds that we have and strengths and weaknesses and gifts and areas of interest and service, with all of that, 
individually. He brings us together so that the disposition in Christ is to build life and fellowship with others. It is a corporate life focused in which we realize that Christ redeemed us for each other. And he does it so that he might display his life through us. And what a testimony that is from and through the church to the world. Second, be sympathetic. And that means you feel empathy for and with one another. Some of you are feeling empathy for me because my voice is almost totally gone, but still here just a little bit. Thank you for your empathy. Well, we share together in the experiences of life and challenges and we share together in our weaknesses. And so this means that we willingly enter into the struggles and the hurts and the sorrows and the joys and the triumphs of others in the body. We see weaknesses and failures of others without disdain. Sometimes that's hard to do, isn't it? Got to die to self, live in Christ to do that. We see the victories and successes of others without jealousy. Got to die to self, live in Christ to do that. We can't be strangers to one another and be sympathetic. We can't be aloof and maintain a sympathetic heart. Sympathy means eye contact and listening and patiently hearing another story and feeling with that brother and sister or, or, or sister, hurting with them, rejoicing with them, being slow to judge them. That's life in the body of Christ. And it's rooted in conscious empathy with one another. Third, love one another. Well, love one another is central to the outworking of life in Christ. We've been hearing this as Pastor John's been going through uh, John 14 and, and 15, where Jesus said, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. So loving as Jesus' love can't be done in our power. It is found in abiding in him. It's that union with him. It's living out of the abundance of his gracious work in us that we're able to love. You say, okay, I got that. Let's move on to something else. I can do all that love stuff. But notice what he says here, that we are to love in the same way that he loves us. So that means loving unconditionally. Uh, that means that we love even those that are unlovable. Uh, that means that we love to the point of laying down our lives for others, even as Jesus did for us. That's the kind of love that Peter's talking about. And it's got to be his love in me loving or it's not going to happen. And we don't get there without dealing with the sins that hinder us in loving others and that love working out of us. I, I, I think this is a regular challenge in our lives. I mean, it's a very easy, really, it's very easy to love all of you. This is a very lovable bunch of folks. And Karen and I have talked about that so much. I mean, we're so grateful. And it's very easy to love you. Uh, but it's not always easy to love everyone. Uh, sometimes the Lord puts some people in our lives that are just stinking hard to love. Uh, I rem when I was a college student, uh, we had a, a wonderful group of, of brothers and sisters in our college that loved the Lord. And they, they were so encouraging, so good to be around them. 
But there were two guys in particular that I just had difficulty with them. They grated on me. They just did. Uh, I mean, their, their idiosyncrasies, their inconsistencies, their verbal gaffes, they were always doing something. I'm just kind of like, ah. So one spring, I traveled with about 40 other guys to South Carolina. We were rooming together in these, this big old house, and we were going to be listening to teaching from a, uh, a retired missionary who was in her 90s teaching us about living the Christian life. And, and so we we're going to be dealing with sin and learning how to live in Christ's fullness. And so guess who my two roommates were during that weekend? It's those two guys. Luck of the draw? I don't think so. The Lord put me in that situation so that I would learn. The problem was not those guys. The problem was not all their gaffes. Yeah, they had their gaffes. The problem was not their idiosyncrasies. They had theirs and I had mine. The problem was me. The problem was my pride. The problem was my self-exaltation. The problem was my self-importance. And I had to learn to deal with my sin so that I could love those guys. And it wouldn't come without repentance and humility. Fourth, be compassionate. Now, compassion expresses tender feelings for someone to in ASB, it translates this as tenderheartedness. It is a gentleness of spirit that has this inward heart of mercy toward others. And we have to think about Jesus, who saw the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion for them. Could they do anything for Jesus? Zero. But he saw their needs. He spoke the word to them. And he fed them. And so what, what we see in compassion is that uh, we recognize others as image bearers. We recognize their neediness. And within the scope of God's provisions for us, we seek to serve those fellow image bearers. Fifth, be humble. So be humble. Be humble-minded. That begins with recognizing that we are always needy people before the Lord. Please don't get to the point where you think you got it all together. You're getting ready to have a huge fall when you do. Uh, we are learning that we are to be living life in dependence on Christ, conscious of our sins, conscious of our need for forgiveness and grace, and bowing to Christ's lordship over our lives. The humble brother or sister is not impressed with self or with achievement or with abilities for he or she knows that whatever they have has come by the grace of God. You remember Paul to the Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. And that's it. Humble people do not believe the press reports about them. Where, everybody, where everyone's heaping the praise on, oh, you're so great, you're doing all this. Because that humble person knows, oh, you don't know the struggle of my own heart. You don't know how I have to wrestle with sin. You don't know how I get up in the morning and I, if I don't seek the Lord that day, if I don't seek to live in him that day, I am totally sunk. You see, a humble person learns to regularly see himself, herself 
in light of the cross of Christ, in light of the cautionness of Christ's sacrifice. They see that apart from the bloody death of Jesus and the preserving grace of Christ by spirit, they deserve the very depths of hell. And Jesus himself, who had no sin, described himself as lowly and humble in heart. That's the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator, sustainer, redeemer, and yet he's marked by humility. And so also should we. And here's where this passage hits home. Peter makes application to summarize what he's declared of how we're to live in the public life, how we're to live in the community, how we're to live under uh, extraordinarily hard circumstances as those slaves experience, how we're to live in the marriage life. What do we need to cultivate our hearts through gospel application and spiritual disciplines to see these kinds of dispositions show up in our lives regularly? In whatever sphere we find ourselves, we're called to be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So do you mean in the work life? Yes. Uh, do you mean in those hard situations? I mean, you look at what those slaves are going through, and then you look at our lives, and we complain? Give me a break. And yet, he was saying, live the Christ life. Live with these kinds of dispositions. Do you mean in marriage? Yes. I mean, what happens to our marriages when we're like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble to our spouse? Christ becomes evident in our home, and we enjoy living life together, and we bear testimony to the power of the gospel. We find this deeper satisfaction in what the Lord is working in our lives by his providence. And it's, only, it's a, the only way for consistently displaying those dispositions is by the life of Christ being lived out of us. We abide in him. We've been hearing that in John 15. We abide in him. We live in dependence upon him. And faith in Jesus to save is now faith in Jesus to live life, to live life to live the Christ life. That's why we pick up no, the Bible reading guides, not right here. We pick up those Bible reading guides and we read through the word. One of the most important things for me since becoming a Christian in 1969 is reading through the scripture every year. I didn't start that. I wish I had from 1969 on read through the scripture, seek the Lord, meditate on the word. Let that word get in your heart. Second thing we see is the Christ life in relationships, controlling the tongue. Um, Peter builds his teaching on, the, on, on Psalm 34. It's interesting that there are a lot of, of uh, allusions to Psalm 34 throughout this whole epistle. Uh, but why, why does he use that, that psalm? Because it is a psalm of the persevering life. We would say the persevering life in Christ. David would have said the persevering life and promise of Messiah. This is how you live your life. I mean, this Psalm 34, the background of it, is one of those very gritty times in, uh, in David's life. He was fleeing from Saul. And of all things, I mean, 
we can really do some dumb things in life, and the Lord is just so merciful to us. But of all things, he thinks he'll find refuge with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines knew the hit song in Israel. Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. Who are those tens of thousands slain? The Philistines. And where does David go to find refuge? To the Philistines. Now, you got to admit, that was one of the dumbest things on the face of the earth. From this man who, who had, uh, you know, was so amazing. It was foolhardy. It was a bad move. And so David goes to Gath, where Abimelech was king. And he soon realized that flying into the camp of your enemy to find refuge is not really a very good idea. And so David did two things. He prayed for deliverance. Then he acted like a madman. So he started just slobbering and drooling all over the place and saying crazy stuff. And he found something to begin to write graffiti. And some suggest he's probably writing some pretty nasty things about Abimelech uh, on the walls of the gate. And, and, uh, and then Abimelech says, I've got enough madmen around here. I don't need another one. Get this guy out of here. And so David leaves. Well, Alec Montier, the, the late Irish scholar, suggests that after he, he got out, that David had some of those campfire talks with his buddies and they were sitting around, you know, everybody's telling their story. And so David begins to talk about how he outwitted Abimelech and, you know, his great acting job and slobbering in the graffiti, talking about some of the things that he wrote. And the guys were laughing and having a big time and going, man, this is so cool. And David, then David begins to think more clearly about this. Yeah. He acted like a madman. Yeah, he did some, some things to get out of that situation. But it was the Lord that delivered him. That's how he got out. It wasn't his cleverness he was to boast in. And so he begins Psalm 34 using my year's translation. In Yahweh, my soul will make its boast. And then what happens when you boast in the Lord? The downtrodden will hear it. And rejoice. If you're boasting in yourself, no one else is going to find something to rejoice in. But when you boast in the Lord, there's go, oh, that's for me. That's for me. And so in this context, David moves from looking to the Lord, boasting in the Lord, tasting that the Lord is good, confessing that the angel of the Lord camps around those who are his. And then he starts talking about the tongue. You know, you look at that and you think, how did David make such a leap to go from that grandeur of boasting in the Lord to talking about the tongue? But is that a leap? You see, when we're learning to live life in Christ, then we give evidence of the Lord in us by the way we use our tongues. And uh, Pastor Joshua has been really helping us to think about that. In, in his exposition through James, that the tongue is the thermometer of the soul. And Joshua, I think you used that term sometime along the way. The tongue is the thermometer of the soul. We can be too cold in relationships by lack of sympathy, kindness, and gentleness. And so our words are chilling. They're freezing the hearts of others with no love. Or it can be too hot with insults and vengeful speech. And we scald others by our bitter sarcasm and our biting remarks. And so Peter's calling for us to have a comfortable 72 degrees. 
That's what he's saying. You know, I want your tongue to be balanced. Notice how he does it. First, he does it negatively, and then he does it positively. Negatively, he, he says, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. And then he quotes from Psalm 34 uh, in, in verse 10, for the one who wants to love life and see good days. And this, this is that consciousness that I am in relationship to the Lord, so I am anticipating the fullness of his life now and the fuller life in eternity. The one who wants this, the one who desires that, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So he goes from disposition, those qualities in, uh, in verse 8, he goes from that to the use of the tongue in order to remind us that the, dis, the, the very evidence that our disposition is, get, is growing in health comes out in the way we use our tongues in our relationships with others. So our disposition lays foundation for relationships that begin to shape conversation and shape, and shape relationships. Now, what's the tendency, though, in relationships when we think someone's trampled on our turf or they've kind of uh, dissed us or they've disagreed with us or they've not spoken highly of, uh, enough of us or not paid enough attention to us? Uh, we want to pay back evil for evil and insult for insult, and so we fire back. We want to get the last dig in. And we say things that if we'd taken just a little pause, we would not otherwise have said. But pride and anger and self-importance and bitterness begin to explode and we dish out these caustic words and insults. And then we nurse our wounds with bitter and barbed cuts and the relationships get wrecked. Pride builds such a wall around itself that we will not back down to or confess the sin of our tongue. We keep each other at arm's length. So there's no encouragement, there's no sympathy, there's no brotherly love, just stubborn resistance to humility. Or we hide behind our cell phones, screens, and we lob uh, written verbal grenades and our opponents, and we treat ourselves as monarchs who have no uh, uh, right uh, to hesitate in dishing out, belittling, and trashing comments to those who disagree with us. But here he says, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. I mean, do we live in the community with that kind of self-control? If you're married, do you live in your marriage with that kind of self-control? I mean, do we, do we conduct our relationships with that spirit in mind? And then he says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So in other words, are there no exaggerations in the way we respond to others? Uh, do, do we guard against bitter-tinged comments in reacting to what someone has said or done? He says, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. So how do we get control of our tongues in relationships? Let, let me give you five things to consider. One, 
It starts with heart disposition. You see that in verse 8. Be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. These are really fruits of the Spirit. Are we cultivating those fruits in our lives? Uh, Do we regularly evaluate our dispositions and in so doing die to self and die to stubbornness and die to always having to be right and die to thinking only of ourselves, die to not noticing others' wounds, die to pride. You see, we regularly apply the cross and resurrection as we are concerned with heart disposition. Second, it's strengthened by learning to live in God's providence. Now, here, here's what I mean. Providence means the Lord's, or refers to the Lord's governing the details of our lives. And we, we talk about that, don't we? Especially, I mean, we have a good providence that happens. I mean, so, something comes along and go, yeah, it's providence of God. That's how it happened. Yeah. What do we do when we have a bitter providence? Are we quite as quick to do that? Uh, I mean, his governance means that life is not necessarily going to be sweet and easy and no problems. Bitter providence comes with sweet providences. The Lord knows that we don't do very well living on the red carpet. As a matter of fact, it gets to our head, and we we think that we don't really need him. It ruins us. He knows what we need and what he intends to work out in our character so that Christ will become more and more real in our lives. And at times in God's providence, we face difficulties. We suffer according to God's will. Peter talks about that in chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 5. And so are we to take things in our own hands and in our own tongues? Are we to insult and dish out fiery chastisements on others and trash and verbally crush others when the Lord has governed the details of our lives and brought us into some difficulties and trials so that he might form Christ in us? So he strengthens us by learning to live in God's providence. A, a third way that he works this, uh, this controlling in our tongues is we need to recognize our unworthiness of the kind mercies of the Lord. I mean, we, we generally verbally dish out uh, insults to others because we have a superior mentality. We think more highly of ourselves than we should think. But do, do we stop to consider that we deserve hell? Apart from the grace of God, counting us righteous in Christ through his redemptive work, we go straight to hell, and we deserve it. This is why we need to daily ask the Holy Spirit to search us and to expose our sin that we might humbly confess and repent of that, that we might tear our hearts and not our garments. I mean, do we think on him pulling us from the pit of destruction and delivering us from Satan's hold not for anything we've done, but out of sheer mercy. Fourth, we're to value others as image bearers. We're to value others as image bearers, especially brothers and sisters in Christ who've been redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. 
Can we justly trash our fellow image bearers? Can we insult and speak with bitterness towards those that Jesus treasures? Well, that affects something coming out of your mouth, doesn't it? Fifth, we're to think of how often we've wounded others. I mean, we, we've done that. Oh, I've done it so many times I can never count them. Biting words, slashing with our tongues, those who've been made in God's image, those who've been redeemed by Christ. If we've done that and the Lord has forgiven us and restored us to fellowship, dare we slip back in those same patterns? Dare we act as though the saving work of Jesus has done nothing to change our hearts and tongues? Well, not only does it deal with this negatively, but it deals with it positively. The second thing, we might say, okay, I'll restrain the invectives. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to stop those, but that's it. But there's no room for neutrality here. We're told to not just avoid misusing our tongues, but notice what he says. But on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, honestly, I read this and I think, Peter, you could have gone all day without saying that. Yeah, okay, I'll hold my tongue back, but I have to take that next step of giving a blessing. I mean, as those who have received the promises of the gospel and eternal inheritance in Christ, we don't deserve the eternal riches that have been given to us, and yet we are to bless others because we've been on the receiving side, a divine blessing. He says, you were called for this. That is, through that inward call of the Spirit and the external call by the gospel, your whole person has been radically affected, even for those who don't do you right, who speak unkindly to you, who betray you, who wound you, who criticize you, He says, giving a blessing instead. Now, let me ask you something. Are you going to do that without the life of Christ working in you? No way. Not going to happen. So the, the idea of blessing here, as one writer puts it, is to invoke God's favor on someone. So we willingly pray with sincerity, for those who are at enmity with us. But it also means we act with kindness toward them. I love the story Kieran Jobes tells of a a Christian soldier living in a military barracks, and he was continually harassed by another soldier. So one night he was reading his Bible, uh, sitting on his bed reading his Bible, and this guy that had been harassing him took a muddy boot and threw it at him. Of course, you know, in a barracks, all the other guys have been laughing and joining in with all the haranguing going on. The next morning, this bitter antagonistic guy found his boots at the end of his bed clean and polished. That did something in that atmosphere. And over the next several months, by God's grace, several of those soldiers came to faith in Christ. Why? Because that's so countercultural. That is so, uh, so uh, foreign to the human heart to bless those 
who persecute you. Bless and curse not, as Romans 12 said. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Montier summarizes this use of the tongue. He said, it is thoroughly keeping with the Bible's priorities that the one specific target we are to aim at in our pursuit of the Lord's holiness is the controlled tongue. Bless because he says, You've been called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. In other words, keep the end in view when acting in the present. Keep your sights on what's ahead when you're dealing with things in the, in the now. So you treat others in a way as one, you look at yourself and you go, I'm unworthily receiving eternal any eternal inheritance at the cost of the suffering of the death of Christ. And so I can afford now to bless others who mistreat me because I have an ample supply of inheritance ahead. That person is not going to rob me of anything that the Lord wants me to have. There's so much waiting for me. And so let the disposition of Christ flood your heart so that your tongue will be a thermometer registering that your life is under control. Third thing we see in this text, the Christ life in consciousness, anticipating the future. Now, Peter couches his exhortation to bless uh, instead of insult with this qualifier. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, he's quoting again from Psalm 34. He, he's addressing one who is persevering in the faith. He's not speaking of earning salvation. He's already made that amply clear. Chapter 1, verse 3, God, has given, God himself has, has given you this new birth. He's the one that's done that. Chapter 1, verse 5, you're being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, you were redeemed from your empty way of of life inherited from your ancestors, not through perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Uh, chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. You see, he's not contradicting what he's already written. Instead, he's speaking of the new character in the life of the believer. This life in good days takes on, as one writer puts it, an eschatological note. And so, in other words, your, the, your life is being shaped by your e eternal inheritance. You have this forward look, your hope, that's what hope does. You don't hope for something that's already here. You're hoping for something that is ahead. This hope focused in Christ Jesus affects our ethics. It affects our tongues. It affects our relationships. Evidence that we're experiencing new life in Christ is going to be found, Peter is telling us here, in our dispositions with Christ's character working in us and out of us, and our tongues now consequently blessing instead of insulting. And so he says, the believer will turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. So we don't passively wait for the second coming. No, instead, 
we're actively pursuing a life that builds healthy relationships in Christ in every sphere of our lives. But how can we learn to do this consistently? I mean, it's one thing to, to do it occasionally when everything is calm and everything is going our way. But how do we do it when everything is going the opposite way of what we had hoped? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 12. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. You may say, well, here's the problem. Righteous, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That's not me. Take a look. I fail so often. I mean, I struggle. My performance doesn't even get above the dashboard. I mean, even if it got over the dashboard, still wouldn't be enough. Are we righteous enough on our own to have standing with God? Of course not. But rather, the Lord sets his eyes on those who have been counted righteous in Jesus Christ. That's where your favor is found. It is from him, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is from him, it is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Uh, Philippians 3.19, Peter gave testimony. And that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God based on faith. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Lord looks on the righteous because he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He made sure of that. And his ears opened to their prayers. The Lord's eyes on us. And so here you are struggling. You're wrestling with your disposition. You're wrestling with your tongue. You're wrestling with blessing instead of cursing and insulting. How are you going to deal with that? The Lord's eyes are on you. His eyes are not on you uh, and just saying, well, that's nice. Oh, okay. Oh, they're having trouble. Too bad. When the Lord's eyes are on you, he's active. When his ears are hearing our prayers, it's active. Not because we've done all the right things, we take all the right stands, and we do everything the, the, the way that we think we should do it, but his eyes are on us, his ears are our prayers, because we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us at the cross. Imagine, unworthy as we are, because of Jesus' redeeming work, we have favorable access to God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10 tells us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Hebrews 4, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The tenderness of his eyes and his ears hearing us implies divine love, divine favor, divine certainty of his care, even when others mistreat us, 
even when we're going through bitter providences, even when we feel the depth of our weakness, he doesn't look or hear idly or passively. He acts when we are in need. That's why we anticipate the future. We live with the certainty of life, good days, and inheriting the eternal blessing bound up in the gospel. And that reorients the way we look at our disposition and the way we use our tongue. But notice the warning that he gives right at the end of verse 12. But the face of the Lord is, is against those who do evil. I mean, those who are under the judgment of God, those who are not standing in the righteousness of Jesus, do not have that kind of favor. The face of the Lord, this holy, pure, just, righteous one has, that has been spurned by stubborn unbelief and re rebellion against him and resisting the gospel, that face of the Lord will be against those who persist in evil. This is the face of judgment. We all deserve it. Everyone in this room deserves it. But God in his mercy has provided the way for that judgment to be averted because God, God turned that judgment on his son at the cross. If you're one today who says, I don't know that righteousness, you can know that righteousness because of what God has done in Christ. As you look to him, as you see Jesus died for me, Jesus bore my sins in his own body on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead for me so that I might be able to live in this righteousness that is being talked about today. In Christ, God poured out judgment and wrath on behalf of all who would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And so if you're living in the deadness of sin, then repent of sins. Turn from them. God gives grace to do that. Believe in the Lord Jesus. He gives grace to do that. And then you will love life. And you'll love those good days where there is an eternal inheritance for you in Christ. You see, if we have this anticipation of the future in view, it encourages us to put into practice what Peter spelled out concerning the Christian's disposition and concerning our tongue involving all of our relationships. Future grace means present diligence and perseverance. That's why Peter quotes from a psalm of perseverance, Psalm 34. We must live as those who desire eternal life and desire to see the goodness of the Lord in full measure. And so we guard our hearts, we guard our speech, we guard our steps, we guard our pursuits, and we do so in the strength of, uh, of the life of Christ working in us and through us. And so life in Christ affects a whole person. It affects your dispositions. It affects your relationship. It affects your consciousness of the future. Or else you don't have life in Christ. But if you do, all those are being affected. And our relationships give evidence of Jesus' life working in us. We're to be living his life by his saving, sanctifying grace. Let's pray together.